becoming very much aware, you know, for the first time in my life, I heard that I could die. And uh, so as I heard myself say that, I experienced such a deep sense of um, peace. And I, the self-talk was, well, I'm 83 years old. I've, I've lived a long life and it's been a good life. And I'm very grateful. But just that sense of peace uh, as, you know, the night before I uh, underwent that surgery, I still, that memory keeps coming back to me. And I'm, it's just profound gratitude and a deep sense of joy. Uh, I just, I'm just... Each day is a gift, you know, and I attribute all of that to the fruit of the prayer. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Contemplate This. I am your host, Tom Bushlack, and this interview is with Father Bill Sheehan. The idea to interview Father Bill was suggested by Jim McElroy, who was my guest on episode 19. And wow, was that a great suggestion. Normally, I have to kind of warm up my guests with a few questions, but Father Bill just dives right into the heart of contemplative prayer and meditation right from the start. The other amazing thing about Bill is that although he is not himself in a 12-step recovery program, he's been a valuable resource for many people involved in the 12-step contemplative outreach community over the years. Bill is a member of the Oblate Missionaries of Immaculate Mary Religious Order, and he's been involved with Centering Prayer and Contemplative Outreach since the very beginning. In fact, he was at the now-famous Lama Retreat in New Mexico in 1983, where Thomas Keating first unleashed the method of Centering Prayer to the world as we know it today. Bill speaks with a warmth and a wisdom that can only come from years of being immersed in his practice and in living out the fruits of contemplation in daily life. I do want to mention that the recording kept picking up a rustling sound, and no matter what we tried to do, we couldn't figure out how to get rid of it during the interview. So I ask you to bear with it, and I trust that Bill's authentic joy will override any frustration you find in the imperfections of the recording. You can find the show notes page for this episode at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 22. That's the word episode 2-2 with no spaces. Along with lots of links to the recordings, books, and resources that we mention throughout this episode. These are excellent resources for you to dive deeper into some of the things that we talk about together, so you'll definitely want to check them out. A few quick announcements before we cut to the interview. First, if you've gone to my site recently, you've noticed that thomasjbushlack.com has a brand new look. You can still find all the same great content, including the podcast. And of course, I have to mention my course on the 11th step, Contemplative Prayer and Meditation for 12-Step Recovery, to help support your own recovery and share my experience, strength, and hope with others. Also, in a few weeks, I'll have another site going live at centeringforwisdom.com. This site will feature my Centering for Wisdom assessment tool, along with public speaking and professional development and coaching workshops to help leaders deepen your contemplative practice and enhance your wise and ethical decision-making 
in both personal and professional life. If you want to learn more about Centering for Wisdom, you can go to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash assessment and read a fun blog post that I wrote about it. And if you want to get notified when the new site goes live, you can sign up for my email list on the main page at thomasjbushlack.com. And as a bonus, you'll receive a free download of my most popular guided meditation from the Insight Timer app. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts or consider making a free will donation to support the production costs involved in creating each show. Either way, your support is very much appreciated and helps us all to pay it forward. Okay, let's get right into my interview with Father Bill Sheehan. I'm here with Father Bill Sheehan, and he was recommended to be a guest by my previous guest, Jim McElroy, on episode 19, I think it was. So thank you for being here. Great to have you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Wonderful. So Jim told us a little bit about his involvement with 12-step outreach and centering prayer, and I know that you have met Jim through that. So you want to tell us a little bit about how you made that connection and how you got involved with contemplative outreach as well as the 12-step? Well, I can begin. Uh, we have just had Jim uh, on the podcast. Uh, it was uh, probably about 12 years ago that I got a phone call from Jim inviting me to come to St. Louis for their 11-step weekend retreat. And when he initially asked me, I was quite hesitant because I, I don't, as we say, we, I don't walk the talk. I know a lot about the program, but, uh, and I've uh, been in relationship with a lot of people in recovery, but they don't actually walk the talk. But Jim kind of put that aside and said, we want you to come. So I began that journey, um, let me say, 10 or 12 years ago and went out each year for their uh, weekend retreat. And uh, for me, um, it was just a profound experience and probably the most touching part of the experience and what moved me deeply was uh, on each of the evenings, Friday and Saturday evening, um, they would have a meeting and uh, an, mm. uh, an AA meeting. A 12-step meeting, yeah. 12-step meeting and just sitting in on that and listening to people's stories and initially, as they began to tell the story, I would be saying to myself, uh, they could be dead. And mm. here they are, just full of life and energy and gratitude. And uh, for me, that was the most moving part of the weekend, even though I was available to chat with people and help with you know, different aspects of the retreat. But for me, that was the, uh, that was the gift that... Yeah. Uh, I received. I know I've heard a lot of those stories over the years myself, and uh, I think a lot of people recognize that um, if the addiction is severe enough, the outcome is either death or recovery. Exactly. And at some yeah. point, you know, we talk about rock bottom, um, yeah. that the choice becomes unavoidable between the two. Yeah. 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 And one of the things that uh, when my, the very first weekend that um, that I participated in that retreat was basically an introductory workshop on centering prayer. And that was the focus for the whole retreat, giving the various conferences that uh, allow people to be initiated into the experience of the prayer. 
And then the next year I went, there were a number of um, people that had been the previous year. So it was kind of like what to do. They don't need necessarily to go through the introductory. So that's when Jim and I began and, and the other members of the team began to integrate the welcoming prayer practice and the forgiveness practice. And again, both of those practices were just so helpful to this particular community. Uh, and, and it was just a joy for mm. me to see how enthusiastically, you know, they absorb these practices. So it's like they were integrating a, a contemplative prayer practice, uh, their relationship with their higher power, but also integrating these two active spiritual practices that just you know are so helpful in terms of integrating and, and growing and deepening uh, in their process of recovery it was just tremendous and uh, there were there were always 55 or 60 people at those retreats so they were very well attended yeah i think that listeners have probably heard me talk about centering prayer and might have a sense of what that is but could you explain a little bit um, what the welcoming prayer and the forgiving prayer are? Sure, I'd be glad to. The welcoming prayer, the way we describe it, um, it arose early on in the history of contemplative outreach. I mentioned uh, the 1983 Lama retreat was probably a couple of years later, uh, maybe 85, I would say no later than 85, the Mary Morosky who was one of the retreatants at Lama and a very, very uh, close collaborator with Thomas Keating. Uh, in fact, I would call Mary the, the co-founder of Contemplative Outreach along with Thomas, an extraordinary woman. And she began to put together what ultimately became the welcoming prayer. And then it's been refined down through the years, but it's basically an active spiritual practice outside the time of centering prayer that helps us to continue to disidentify with our over-identification with our emotional programs for happiness. And in developing his uh, false self, true self paradigm, building on Thomas Merton, Thomas Keating would say that one of the internal sources that contribute to the building up of the false self is our over-identification with our exaggerated demand for power, control, affection, esteem, approval, or security. And he goes on to, or Mary went on to point out that it's, how do we know when our emotional programs are acting out? It has everything to do with the intensity of our afflictive emotions so mm -hmm. that Anytime we begin to feel the buildup of our afflictive emotions like anger or fear or anxiety, and there's always the external catalyst that kind of brings it forth or contributes to the bringing forth, but that's precisely when you enter into this active spiritual practice. Uh, very, very, so very, very helpful. Yeah, I've found the welcoming prayer to be helpful as well. Um, do you, I don't know if I can do it from memory right now, but can you remember exactly what the, um, the, there's kind of a, I wouldn't call it a mantra, but there's a, a prayer that goes with it. Well, it, it, uh, the process would be, um, you become aware of the buildup of some intensity, say for example, around, I'm beginning to feel, I have just been cut off 
in traffic and I'm beginning to feel the upsurge of this rage and anger. And the welcoming prayer would suggest as a first step in the process. And this is so, so helpful. You're invited to focus and to sink into that afflictive emotion precisely where you carry it in your body. So you focus, you mm -hmm. sink in, you focus, you sink in. And then as you move into the process intentionally, and this is what makes it a prayer, intentionally you welcome the afflictive emotion, you welcome the anger, you welcome the fear, you welcome the anxiety, and simultaneously in a both and kind of way, you also welcome the presence of God within the afflictive emotion. And then you move into the letting go, and, and you basically say, interiorly, I let go of my desire for power, control, affection, esteem, approval, security. I let go of my desire to change the situation in which I find myself. So that's the process. And, um, you know, initially it might sound a little confusing, uh, but as you begin to embrace the practice, it, it, uh, it becomes interiorized and it just becomes a part of, a part of your own process. Yeah. So I found it very helpful, um, both in terms of dealing with, you know, addictive um, desires that might arise, but also just any kind of negative emotions. Anxiety has always been a big struggle for me. And sure. uh, one of the things that I really love about that prayer and how it sort of extends the practice of, of centering um, into the more active parts of our day is that I find that you know, my first reaction, and this is human nature, when we feel something afflictive and uncomfortable is to want to get rid of it sure. or deny it. And yeah. certainly the last thing we want to think is that God is in it. That's right. That's, <laughs> uh, but that's, that's the, it's almost like this kind of judo move that yeah. if I, so if I, if I start to feel that and I push against it, it pushes yeah. back even that's harder. Right. That's and then right. my anxiety builds or my desire builds until I'm acting on it or I'm, you know, whatever. Um, but there's something about just recognizing it and letting it be and getting oh, yeah. myself out of the way yeah. that there's a real deep healing that can happen in that process. Well, it's the healing and it's the ongoing, it's really the ongoing fruit of centering prayer. Because when you enter into centering prayer in a, you know, through a daily practice, a couple of times a day, as Father Thomas would recommend, that very process is beginning to soften up, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the emotional uh experience, the emotional material that we've absorbed in the body, it's just there. And as you move into this more receptive form of prayer, the softening up comes. So I've always said early on that you cannot introduce people to centering prayer without fairly soon also inviting them to experience the welcoming prayer. To me, it's a both and. Uh, mm. uh, because again, you know, oftentimes people, People will say, I'm praying more and more and feeling worse and worse. Well, it's, it's, it's okay. You know, it really is okay. But you need that 
extra help along the way so that you don't fall back into either being disappointed in yourself for the intensity of one of the emotions or God help us repressing it or pushing it aside. It's like God is present. It's it's really the element, I believe, it's the, it is the healing, but it's also the purification of these tendencies that uh, are so deeply embedded within within the human condition. This isn't a moral issue, as you were just saying. It's, yeah. it's a human issue, you know, and that's to feel at home and to feel comfortable with, with all of that process is terribly important. Yeah. And I just want to point out for listeners, too, that the language that you were using around um, emotional programs for happiness, the desire for security, affection and control, that um, a lot of that language comes from Thomas Keating's small but beautiful yeah. little book called The Human Condition. Yeah. Exactly. And so for people who are interested in exploring that, I'll put a link to that book in the show notes that they can explore. That, again, just a little that particular book represented two conferences that he gave to the Harvard Divinity School many, many years ago. And it was those conferences that they put together, put that, how they put that particular book together. But it was, uh, was excellent. It is a and great it, reason. He, he says in there at the beginning that he's bringing together this sort of ancient contemplative wisdom of the Christian and other traditions uh, with modern psychology and oh, yeah. insights into how we store and process memory and um, yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, one, well, one of the things just on, on, on that, you know, uh, welcoming prayer for me, uh, one of the great insights he offered early on, but it, you know, it takes a while to absorb it is his reminder that the body, our bodies absorb every experience of our lives, you know, mm -hmm. so it's the storehouse of our, you know, uh, of our, our, our own lived experience. And some of that can be pretty painful. And how do we, how do we open ourselves to receive or to experience the healing and the purification that God wants to share with us? You know, God is with us. God is not against us. You know, he's yeah. accompanying us. Wow. There's a, you also used some language about um, the welcoming prayer being an active prayer. And yes. centering prayer being a passive or a contemplative receptive prayer. Can you explain would, the uh, difference? My, my big point on centering prayer, and if, frankly, after many years of practice, if you were to ask me, uh, and even if you don't, I'm going to tell you. Uh, <laughs> well, I did. The, uh, the uh, pure gold of centering prayer is receptivity. Because you're, it's, a, it's a receptive form of contemplative prayer where the emphasis is really, uh, you know, put in our willingness, our desire to consent to the love and to the presence and to the action of God unfolding from within the depths of our hearts 24-7. And then the letting go, uh, you know, anytime, you know, a thought or an insight, you know, just the yielding, the surrendering. But your experience selling that in a mode of receptivity God is loving us 24-7. And, and what does that mean? And, you know, how much, how can that become more and more the foundation? You know, as Ignatius would say, the principle and the foundation of the spiritual life. God loving us unconditionally. And all we're being invited to do is to consent. And then, you know, to let go of whatever might be getting in the way without judgment. 
without you know any kind of a moral uh, inventory just let it be and let it go and 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 when i say that letting be and letting go it's not just a, a casual you're surrendering whatever that is to the love and to the presence and to the action of god so it's all about relationship mm. wow you also mentioned the prayer forgiveness or forgiving prayer that one i'm not familiar with can you explain well that that, uh, that again um i think mary morosky i uh, Mary Morosky, uh, along with the welcome prayer, began to put together this. It's an active, it's more of an active meditative approach um, where you're invited, uh, you, you know, particularly if you do it communally, uh, you know, you lead people. You'd first of all do kind of like a body scan and just encourage people, you know, to move from the head to the, through the body. To the heart all and then just to relax and then you're invited to allow that soft penetrating light to return to the area of the chest and to enter into the place of the heart where um where you are in the presence of the holy spirit mm. and the first step in the process would be to invite someone into your sacred safe place that you need or that you want to forgive and then you know as i say a guided meditation you know a person comes into your sacred safe place and you let them know interiorly you let them know how much they may have hurt you or traumatized you or affected you in a, in a negative kind of way you, you share that in spades and then after that, you uh, simply say to the person that's come into your sacred, safe place, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And then I think what makes this particular forgiveness practice special, then you ask the person that's come into your sacred, safe place, how have I offended you? Mm. How have I hurt you? How have I traumatized you? And you listen. And then you say, you know, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. So it's a very, very, uh, very, very powerful, powerful practice. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, um, it's really taken on a particular importance in the uh, recovery community because once sobriety has been achieved through surrender and, and the 12 steps, those in recovery become aware in their sobriety of how they really have hurt an awful lot of people in their lives, you know, and, and so it's just so helpful mm -hmm. rather than having them in their sobriety feel guilty or upset or get back into a negative mode of judging themselves, you know, rather than taking that step, um, or, you know, of simply asking for forgiveness or offering forgiveness. Yeah, and I remember reading Bill W. talking about how he could trace back every time he, you know, came, came uh, kind of gave into the addiction. There was always a resentment at the core, kind exactly. of driving that. And I think, yeah. well, I mean, everybody struggles with it on some level, but particularly if you work a recovery program long enough, you are going to uncover. I mean, I, I I remember just years of like peeling onions of like resentments yeah. that I held. Yeah. And yeah, I didn't have exactly. I didn't have quite that 
that meditation practice that you just described, but I know that even my centering prayer was helping with yeah. um, that process. If anyone wanted a, um, a copy of that forgiveness practice, you could uh, obtain that through Contemplative Outreach, the national office, under the Contemplative Life Program. And then okay. they, that's where they have put together a number of practices, uh, the welcoming prayer as well as the forgiveness practice, Lexio and Centering, all in a, in a little booklet. You know, okay. individual booklets. So that that might be helpful for people to know. That's great. I'm going to look for that because I know the website pretty well, and I'll okay. I'll find it yeah. and put a link to it in the show notes page as well. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be yeah. great. That's great. I didn't. Yeah, I hadn't heard quite that piece of it before. Whew. All right, we got like right in. That's awesome. Usually, it takes a while to warm up to like get into <laughs> the depths of practice, but you just went there. So you talked yeah. a little bit about uh, getting involved in the, uh, the St. Louis chapter of 12-step outreach. Now, in terms of a little bit more background, you, were you present at that 1983 retreat where Centering Prayer was sort of, its modern form took shape? Yeah, I was, at the time, I was uh, stationed uh, in the Archdiocese of Miami, and I was the director of formation for our lay ministry program. I was living in a Noble community in the Overtown section of Miami, but then actually worked in the pastoral center in the office of lay ministry. And so interestingly, um, it was in February of 1983 that I was in my office and the director of the lay ministry program, Dr. Mercedes Scopetta, came into my office and wanted to know if I knew of a good keynote speaker who could come the following September to um, keynote a workshop on prayer for our lay ministers. And I had just put down an article in Review for Religious. It was written by Basil Pennington, but it was all about Thomas Keating. And so I just mentioned to Mercedes, gee, if you could get Thomas Keating, that would be wonderful. Well, she left the office and uh, I was kind of going about my preparation for an evening program but just getting ready to leave the office and she comes in and says, well, he's coming. (laughs) Thomas is coming in September. And then she said to me, well, you know, uh, when I was talking to him, he mentioned that he was planning this 14 day contemplative retreat in New Mexico in August. And he invited me to come And she said, I I can't go because my daughter-in-law is expecting in August. Would you like to go? (laughs) So uh, I heard her invitation, but my conflict was uh, that the particular dates of that August retreat was the only time I would have been able to get up to New England to visit my family and to get out of the humidity of Miami. And so... And whenever I'm in doubt, I'll usually say, well, let me pray about it. And it's, you know, initially a mode of escape. But I, (laughs) I, you know, so I went up. I had an evening program up in Broward County and I come back home and I'll never forget it. I was in my room and I'm sitting in my chair and mulling this over. And I just heard a voice say, you will never have another opportunity like this. So that was kind of okay. And I uh, went in the next morning and thanked her for 
you know, offering that opportunity to me, and I'd be happy to go. And uh, it was truly a life-changing uh, experience. But it was really through Mercedes that uh, I, uh, I had the opportunity. Um, because wow. she went, I believe she went the next year. But uh, anyway, I've, I've been eternally grateful to her ever since. Is that there is anything that that stands out to you now so i know thomas sort of facilitated or led that retreat and then what was basil pennington and william manager also there for that no thomas no. was Tony trappist there thomas was okay. there and was obviously the leader um well for me tom the experience of, of you know going to the mountains of the san cristobal mountains in northern new mexico as I've said to people over the years, probably for the first time in my life, uh, I was in my mid-40s at that time, and um, life at Lama was reduced to utter simplicity. There was no uh, electricity. We were living in this adobe kind of simple rooms, uh, no indoor facilities. Uh, there was the proverbial outhouse and it was all vegetarian, and it was an ecumenical or an interreligious community that uh, made up you know, the Lama Foundation. So it was an extraordinary environment. And then the, Thomas was able to have the adobe uh, set up so that we had our rooms, and then um, basically going through the day, it was similar to a, a post-intensive or a, an intensive centering prayer retreat, began early in the morning with a triple sit with the meditative walk. And then there'd be, uh, and it was all in silence. And there were 12 of us there um, and um, breakfast. And then probably around nine or 9.30, Thomas would offer a conference that would always go at least an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. It was all the seminal material that eventually um, was published in certainly beginning in open mind, open heart. And then um, again, we have, would have our three or four periods of centering prayer, would have Eucharist later in the afternoon, would have a couple of hours in the afternoon just to kind of relax, uh, go walking. Or, but it was just uh, an extraordinary experience um, of, of just being so uh, focused and uh, and, and really so detached uh, from everything other than, you know, focusing in on what Thomas was sharing with us and the experience of the prayer. And then in the evening, he'd have us gather together in kind of like a forum and he was starting to share his hopes and his dreams. And that's where I've always said that the person who stood out in those evening conferences or evening sharings with Thomas was Mary Morosky. So it was really, uh, and, and, and they became very, very close friends. I don't know whether you know Mary. Uh, Mary passed away in 1993. So uh, very suddenly uh, out in Denver, Colorado with Bernadette, with Bernadette, um, not Roberts, Bernadette Teasdale. And, um, but Mary was outstanding. Mm, yeah. I never was, I never had an encounter with her, unfortunately. Yeah. No. You would have loved her. Yeah. I bet I would have. Yeah. yeah. So if uh, you were involved in those early days, and then what, what were you 
what kind of work and ministry were you involved in then and how it grew? Well, at that particular time, I was involved, as I mentioned, in the Office of Lay Ministry in the Archdiocese of Miami. I was the director of formation. And at that time, uh, our lay ministry program was a two-year program that uh, our staff would go to different places in the Archdiocese to offer our two-year program. And it was after um, my experience with um, Father Thomas in, in Lama that, and in my own grow, growing commitment to centering prayer that that practice became also part of what we offered to our lay ministers in that, in that particular program. And then we began in, in the Archdiocese of Miami probably about six months after uh, the, probably the following spring uh, people had been after me to begin a prayer group, a centering prayer group, and I was kind of hesitant. Uh, I had a number of things I was uh, involved in, but uh, finally um, I, I just said, well, all right. We had a house in Coral Gables um, that belonged to the Scopetta family, and it was kind of opened up to to the lay ministry office. And so I mentioned that on such and such a night, uh, we could begin and i thought we'd probably have you know a few people that would come to coral gables for this experience we had about 35 people that showed up hmm. and that was the first time that we uh began you know the weekly uh prayer group the weekly not only gave them a, an introductory to centering prayer but then began to meet on a regular basis um you know anytime people wanted to gather for that so that was the beginning. And then, uh, you know, other prayer groups began and we uh, began to, because we had two retreat houses in the area, a Dominican retreat house and a Seneca retreat house up in um, Lantana, that we could begin to have weekend retreats and then longer retreats. And um, we were able to have Father Thomas join us you know, probably two or three times during my period there. So 1983 was the Lama experience. And then I was, remained in uh, the Archdiocese until 1988. And then I was uh, reassigned to our novitiate out in Godfrey, Illinois, not too far from you. Mm -hmm. But uh, so during though, from 83 to 88, we really began to open up the whole contemplative dimension you know, to the people in the archdiocese that were interested. And uh, when I left, we had a number of prayer groups. And uh, as I say, we were doing the introductory workshops, beginning the prayer groups, and then wanting to offer more support in terms of uh, days of prayer, weekends, and then the longer retreats, um, either at the, at, the, at the Lantana Retreat House or the seminary, St. Vincent de Paul up in uh, Boynton Beach, um, or the Minor Seminary in uh, in Stillwater in in Miami, actually. Mm. So there was a lot going on. I I was um, I was, and and lay ministry was just very very supportive of this particular uh, evolution that was happening in terms of you know contemplative prayer. Yeah, one of the th I've heard this story from several different people some on this podcast and some just talking to people and meeting people. And one of the things that I'm so fascinated by is that 
the movement sort of started with a very monastic and a very Catholic emphasis. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that makes sense because I think these traditions have, and not just in Christianity, but in Buddhism and other traditions, thrived and been handed down in monastic communities. But one of the things that's happened is that almost as it's taken its a life of its own without anybody directly intending it, it's grown to become something that is um, that many people who are not in a monastery or or ordained directly for ministry find very life giving and nourishing for their spiritual life, and it's become very ecumenical, uh, which it, for a, a big fancy theology word for you know beyond just one oh, yeah. sort of Christian denomination. It's not just a Catholic thing. In fact, it seems to be growing the fastest among Episcopalians, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah, but even yeah. evangelicals learning more about it, and um, and even interreligious and interspiritual. So, I don't know. Do you have any reflections on that growth and process? Is no, I, I would just. Uh, I think you've summed that up beautifully. Uh, um, and even in 1983, uh, when Father Thomas was conducting a retreat in. Um, in New Mexico, uh, I'm trying to remember. There were, as I mentioned, there were 12 of us on the retreat, and um, I, I I can't remember exactly, but not everyone was Catholic. Maybe that's the way of putting it. So that even in the very beginning, you know, uh, there was that ecumenical uh, element attached to it, and when we had the Eucharist, um, everyone was welcome. And um, the Eucharist was part of the daily routine. And in my experience, uh, usually the Eucharist is part of the uh, retreat experience. But again, everyone is welcome. Mm -hmm. Now, I realize when I'm saying that to you, uh, that could be easily contradicted by um, the National Conference of Catholic Bishops. And I'm very aware of that. Yeah. And I know you're editing this, so you'll be very prudent. But uh, I'm at a point now where um, if if communion becomes an issue, I, I would not celebrate. Mm. Yeah. I would not. I you know, do Alexio, do something else, but I, I would not put people through. Because my sense without, you know, I'm no, I'm no you know, trained theologian. I've had some... Uh, uh, training uh, or formation uh, with Adrian Van Kam years ago at Duquesne University. So it was kind of an integrative, formative program, hmm. more rooted in, in good psychology. But um, I, I cannot understand how anyone could be excluded who are this deeply involved in their relationship with God. It's well, like, especially that, when the, the sort of. Make, yeah. When the when the for the, the root of what you awaken to in your practice is yeah. that we are all in union in God yeah. already, yeah, then right. um, I can see how those things that are external and and divide us, which you know I don't think the Eucharist is necessarily meant to be external and divisive, but in certain contexts, if it's perceived that way, then it becomes a barrier. It, it can be, yeah, it you know. can. Be. Um, but again, your, 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 your intuition or your sense that uh, centering prayer is becoming more ecumenical and it is becoming very much a part of the interreligious dialogue, thank God, that's going on. And I mean, and I don't want to misquote Father Thomas, but I'm 
almost certain that at one point in my hearing, Thomas said, the future of institutional religion is interreligious inter, inter uh, dialogue. He mm. said, without that. And I believe that's true. Um, yeah. I believe that's true. Yeah. Um, well, he certainly lived it. <laughs> he did. He did. Yeah. Have you ever seen, not to, again, have you ever seen okay. the edition of Common Heart? Uh, no. Is that a, a video? That, or? That, was, that was the uh, summation of uh, what, what is called the Snowmass Conferences. And this began in 1985, where Thomas uh, from Snowmass invited a number of faith leaders from different traditions to come to Snowmass for uh, interreligious dialogue. And so the process was, and I think this is brilliant, the process was they would gather and they would pray out of their own tradition. And then they would come together and uh, they would begin to reflect upon areas of agreement present within all of the major world religions. Mm. And then um, they, I, I believe they met maybe once or twice a year, and this went on for 20 years. And eventually, through the prayer and the sharing of areas of, of agreement, the trust level within the community, within this interreligious community, grew to such a degree that they then could begin to talk about areas of disagreement with a great deal of mutual trust and respect. Mm. And I, to me, that captures uh, the process, I think, that could well lead us yeah. along this, along this interreligious path. There always will be areas of disagreement, but they don't have to be divisive. Right. You know. Yeah. And what a model that we need right now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, is that video available like on YouTube or is it something you have to purchase? Well, it's a book. It's a little oh, book, it's a book. entitled. Okay. It's a little book entitled "The Common Heart." The Common Heart. Okay. Well, and I will also you, look you, for that for you the You would show get notes. that. You would get that in, um, you know, from Contemplative Outreach. Yeah, they have. They have it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, anything else that you've observed that you think is particularly important in the development that you've you've lived of this movement? Well, um, <laughs> something that Thomas said, you know, years and years ago, um, you know, in, in, at the very beginning, he would make the observation that the only mistake you can make in centering prayer is to get up and leave. Mm -hmm. Yes, you I know, love it. Yep. Beyond the 20 minutes or beyond the 30 minutes you committed yourself to. But then he also said, and this has been my experience, you know, as you move along, you, you need to keep in a good sense, not in a rigid sense, but from the point of view of attraction, you begin to need to add more time, mm. you know, give more time to God in relationship to this practice. And I've found that um, to be such a gift, uh, to be such a gift. Um, mm. I, um, not to get terribly personal and, and, strike this absolutely if you wish but oh i'd was, say go as personal as you want as you're comfortable it was, with. La it was last it was last and i i maintain this is the fruit of years of, of centering prayer and other contemplative practices but um i and i think you're a little aware of this because we were going to try to connect it a bit earlier but uh 
it was last August. Um, I had just I had just come back from Ireland uh, on August 11th, and prior to going to Ireland, uh, I, I'm a big walker, and uh, I walk about an hour, an hour and a half a day, breaking it up. But usually, try to get a good hour in in the morning, and I was beginning to notice that. Um, uh, I was feeling some pressure around my heart and I, I knew something was going on, mm. but I kept saying, well, I'll, as soon as I come back from Ireland, I'll take care of this. And um, just before I left, I bumped into a very good friend of mine and she and her husband, and she's a retired cardiac nurse. And when I was telling her my symptoms, she literally went ballistic and said, you can't go to Ireland. You're going to have to have this taken care of and so on and so forth. I said, well, I'm going to go to Ireland and I will have it taken care of. But I saw a heart man just the day before I left for Ireland. And he told me uh, after the electrocardiogram and the uh, treadmill, he said, yeah, there are some changes here. So I said, well, as soon as I come back, he said, as soon as you come back, the day after you come back, you're going to have a heart cap. So I get in on Sunday night and, and Monday morning, uh, I'm over at Lowell General Hospital and they're giving me a heart cath. And he finished and he looked at me and he said, well, you're not going home. He said, we're taking you right into Tufts Medical Center in Boston. And I, I you know, I, I was surprised, frankly, but, you know, I said, well, whatever you say. And so uh, I was I was able to get a few things before I left um, from home, but uh, I'm in Tufts Medical, and uh, everyone was just wonderful. And the surgeon came in on Tuesday, and he said to me, uh, "He said you're very, very fortunate." He said, um, "He said you're in very good health," and he said you're a good candidate for this procedure. It's about a seven-hour procedure, hmm. and he said. Uh, but there could be complications. He said, you might suffer a stroke and I forget a couple of other negatives that he said could happen. And honestly, when he left the room, probably, you know, I'm, I'm 83. I was just 83 when I got back from Ireland. I flew back on my birthday in August. And, um, but I'm laying there in the bed and, um, becoming very much aware, you know, for the first time in my life, I heard that I could die. And uh, so as I heard myself say that, I experienced such a deep sense of um, peace. And I, the self-talk was, well, I'm 83 years old, I've, I've lived a long life, and it's been a good life, and I'm very grateful. But just that sense of peace uh, as, you know, the night before I uh, underwent that surgery, I still, that memory keeps coming back to me and I'm, it's just profound gratitude and a deep sense of joy. Uh, I just, I'm just, each day is a gift, you know, and I attribute all of that to the fruit of the prayer, hmm. you know, so that's why I keep encouraging people show up, and just do it. <laughs> you know? Wow. Well, you went to the question I wanted to lead to, and I don't even have to do it, which was to ask you about the the effect that the prayer has had on you, um, the contemplative prayer in particular. Yeah. Well, from yeah, that 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 experience was very reinforcing in terms of you know God is present, God is with me. 
even in this moment of vulnerability. But for me, uh, I would say the ongoing fruit of the experience is the uh, attraction to the prayer. It's it's just a part of my life, and um, you know it might sound a little restrictive, but uh, I, I basically tell people or share with people I cannot not center. It's just part of my it's my life, and mm. uh, so that that um, that attraction and that awareness um, of God's presence. Uh, you know, go you know when you begin to move into some of the mystical part of our tradition and you you know listen to someone like blessed julian who out of her experience of the mystery of god would go on to say uh, you know there's never a moment in our lives when we are separated from god that we've come forth from god and we're returning to god and uh, at every moment in our lives we're being upheld and it's that sense for me that sense of presence um uh, and that's why I keep <laughs> always fall back on it's all about relationship. Mm-hmm. We are in this relationship of unconditional love, and, and can we uh, can we accept that? Can we embrace that? And can we continue to receive, you know, the inflow of God's love that wants to heal and, and to purify and, and to you know to to make all things new from the inside out. You know, it's God's work with our consent, but that is that is our tradition. You know, and um, and it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've ever been a runner. Uh, I don't anymore. I used to. Uh, yeah, I do. I yeah. yeah. But I was a. I started actually not to interrupt, but I started um, actually. Uh, I was uh, ordained in 1965. And uh, actually did not think I would be remaining at our seminary or our theologate in Washington. But without going into all of the details, it was a, a, my father was very, very sick at the time. So I was due to go to Brazil. I had asked to go to Brazil and I was given that permission. But then because of my dad's uh, sickness, uh, I was asked to, to wait. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the doctor had basically put put it on the level of weeks so the provincials said well why don't you stay in washington and so all during my seminary training about 10 years um every day you had to go out i mean it was part of the regulation you had to go out and whatever the sport of the season was you know so i i was very used to daily physical ex- exercise and when i was ordained and kind of on a different schedule than the seminarians or the theologians, I had no one to play with. <laughs> that is really what began the jogging. And so mm. I probably jogged for 50 years now. You know, I, I never was a marathoner. And um, so, I mean, but I, you know, I kind of, you know, would go out every day. And uh, the beautiful thing about jogging, and I, I've done a fair amount of travel for the community over the years, going to different parts of the oblate world and um, all I'd have to do is bring my jogging shoes and I could continue so but then when I when I turned 80 and someone had given me a Fitbit Mm -hmm. I kind of shifted to walking and I'm now in in competition with other people in terms of 10,000 steps a day or you're you're out of my life if you can't keep up with me no yeah 
Yeah. Well, I, I brought up the example because um, I think there's something analogous in centering prayer with when, when you talked about how you can't not practice. And yeah. I think that um, when you start an exercise program or start running, it's not really that fun for the first couple of weeks. <laughs> it's, no. it's kind no. of painful. But then when, when you're in that rhythm, you get to a point sure. where like I, you start to get twitchy if you don't get your run in. And yeah. I find the same thing happens with centering prayer after a while. Yeah. Um, and then another analogy, as you were talking, popped into my head about, you know, a lot of people are tuned in now to, because so many people have Fitbits or smartwatches, to yeah. getting those 10,000 steps, which is like, it's a wonderful thing for health, right? To be aware of. So it's a noble goal. But it, if we can get that same mentality of, you know, 20 to 30 minutes twice a day, just like the 10,000 steps for yeah. the practice, um, then I think everything starts to change around that. Well, I'll t I mean, for me, you know, one of the ways I want to re respond to what you're saying is, you know, be keeping aware that we're body, mind, and spirit, you know, in the exercise, you know, and, and the prayer are both integrative kinds of experiences uh, in terms of holistic approach to living our lives. But the other thing on, um, and you probably have heard this, but uh, the 20 minutes a couple of times a day, why did Thomas... Why was he so insistent on that? And it comes out of one of his spiritual principles that he articulated or shared in the 1983 retreat. He said, um, you will not grow spiritually until you come to that point in your life when you place an equal value or as much value on the gift of your being as you place on the gift of your doing. Hmm. You know? and, and so his point, you take 20 minutes a couple of times a day, you're honoring the gift of your being. Because what are you doing? You're just being with God. Or you're just being in silence, you know, and you're not doing anything other than consenting and letting go and receiving. And so, I, I mean, to me, it, uh, it, it's a, uh, that particular principle, I think, says it all. And, and because we are so you know, so over-identified with the doing aspect that it's uh, very difficult to get people to kind of take the risk of yeah. choosing, choosing to bring that. And then it's only when you choose to begin to integrate that, you know, in due time, you begin then to see the fruits. But it's, um, it's, it's a challenge. It is. But I, I think... I yeah, well, think no, it's... I'm go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. But just that principle, I mean, it's a being doing thing and, and, and people can identify with it immediately, but still they're so caught up in ego. And, and I say you're caught up in ego and you're under the illusion you're in control. And that's stinking thinking. I said, you're not. Oh, yeah. Bill W. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the other thing, another note on Bill W with the welcoming prayer, uh, Tom, is... Um, so the story goes that Bill, as I understand it, and as I've been told, Bill W. attained sobriety and uh, was with Dr. Bob moving about the country, promoting the 12 steps and the, uh, and the and, you know, and, and the spirituality of, of, of the 12 steps. And then after about 12 years, he had a, um, 
he had a either a depression or a breakdown and he and he never thank god he never drank he maintained a sobriety but he couldn't quite understand what had happened and then through the prayer of saint francis he became aware that he put an extraordinary amount of emphasis on his exaggerated demand for affection, esteem, approval. Mm. And once he became aware of that, then he wrote to 12 steppers, emotional sobriety, the next frontier. Mm. And that's why welcoming prayer in relationship to recovery as, as you know, it's just, I mean, it's a Bill W. You know, yeah. there's no question about it. Yeah. He may wow. not have had the practice or, you know, a way of naming it, but but boy, oh boy, he was aware of the uh, addiction or the, or the pull. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I hadn't heard that particular story before. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. a, that's you a might check that, that out with Jim. You might check that out with Jim, but I'm, I, um, yeah, I know that that um, is pretty much, uh, the way it was i mean yeah. they said did he have a did he have a breakdown did he have a depression he just hit bottom emotionally and when you begin to share that with the folks who mentioned that letter uh emotional sobriety and they where they click right in and then well here's a practice that yeah you might be able to attain emotional sobriety through this practice yeah so it's, it's well and i one of my favorite talks that I've listened to, and you can find it on YouTube, is by Ram Das, who's a, um, a meditation teacher from a slightly different background, but uh, it's on addiction. And he talks about how it's possible to be just as addicted to recovery as one is to the, um, the drug or the behavior that got you there in the first place. So when you kind of are gripping for security and affection and control around I haven't had a drink in three years five days you know six hours and 25 seconds um is there any more freedom in that grip than than the alcohol or the the drug yeah exactly Um, and it strikes me that that was maybe part of Bill W's process of just continuing to let go and peel the onion it's a it's ongoing yeah 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 no it's great so those are the, I mean, with recovery, the two practices that mean so much to them is forgiveness and the welcoming because um, once they once sobriety has been attained, you know, you, you can feel, you know, they can, one can feel the anger or the rage and it's like, wow, you know, how do I, how do I deal with this? How do I relate to this? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Well, these are wonderful stories. I have some questions that I like to ask people towards the end of the interview and they're kind of rapid fire fill in the blank without thinking about it too much Okay. (laughs) so don't censor just uh, consent to whatever pops into your mind yeah so how would you fill in the following phrase contemplation is contemplation is a growing awareness of the love and the presence and the action of God Closer to you than you are to yourself. Hmm. The purpose of contemplation is all about. Deepening in our relationship with God and with all of humankind. Hmm. And with the, with the cosmos. Hmm. Taylor would appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no, Taylor is one of my heroes. <laughs> yeah. 
Is there a word or a phrase that captures the heart of your contemplative experience? Gratitude and joy. And then kind of looking forward, what is, is, and you've seen so much of this development in history and lived it. What's your hope for the next generation of contemplative practitioners? That, um, that as practitioners, uh, more and more that we would grow in our commitment to, uh, on a practical level, to facilitate or to foster interreligious dialogue. Uh, mm. Because, you know, we are all one. Uh, and that was, you know, Thomas Merton's famous statement just um, probably weeks before he died in, in Bangkok, but he was in Asia on his way to Bangkok and he was speaking to a group of uh, monastics. And at the end of the conference, he simply said, brothers and sisters, we are all one. We just don't know that yet. And, you know, it's the not knowing that yet that, you know, the, this particular thrust to it, discovering, you know, the contemplative dimension in all of our faith traditions will, will bring about that sense of we are all one. We're you know, we are the image and the likeness of our higher power of God, however you want to name that experience. Uh, you know, I'm very, very grateful uh, to be uh, grounded in, 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 in the Christian contemplative tradition. And hopefully that will become more and more available to the people of God or to the people of the world and, and, and how we can learn and, and glean that wisdom from one another is, is to me, that's the future. You know, it's just, uh, I can say that at 83 because I'm not going to have to do too much more. To, you know, <laughs> well, that's why you just yeah, named why I started this podcast and why I want to interview and, and, um, not capture isn't the right word, but um, appreciate and share the wisdom that you and others have. So thank you for sharing that with me and with all of the listeners out there. My pleasure. My pleasure. Hey, thanks again, everybody, for listening. As always, you can check out the show notes page and explore some of the resources we talked about in this interview by going to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 22. That's the word episode followed by 2-2 with no spaces. There you can also make a donation to support the podcast. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming service you use to listen to the podcast. And don't forget that you can sign up for my email list, get your free guided meditation at thomasjbushlack.com. And you'll also be among the first to know when the new site goes live at centeringforwisdom.com in the coming weeks. Until next time, may you continue to find serenity and freedom in your contemplative practice and in your daily life. As we say in the 12-step world, keep coming back. It works if you work it, so work it, you're worth it. The same thing is true of your daily meditation practice. You are worth it. And the world needs your wisdom and your light. God's peace and blessings upon you in your recovery or in your contemplative journey. And thanks again for listening. 